0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch
1: is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com.
2: Meet and Three is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern.
1: I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of, you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones on a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is this is awesome.
2: We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene, personal identity, and, believe it or not, the influence of great chefs' grandmothers.
3: Meemaw never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after
2: her. But I grew up in her garden and just really, she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode subscribe to Meet and Three wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics and identity. I'm your host came Kamen, and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Today my guest in studio is Naz Duravian. She's a writer and an actor born in Iran. She grew up in Italy and Canada, and now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children. She is the award-winning voice behind the food blog, Bottom of the Pot, and the author of the cookbook, also named Bottom of the Pot, which is on sale now. Welcome to the show, Naz.
2: Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Good to have
3: you. I'm so happy uh, you're in studio and you're in New York because you are promoting your book, which is so exciting.
2: I am. I am so happy to be in New York. It's very hot and humid.
3: It is very hot (laughs) and humid, probably more so than in California
2: right now. But we have fires in California, so there's that.
3: It is a trade-off. Yes. (laughs) Yes, you have fires and I don't know, like a lot more smoothies and yoga and things like that.
2: Green juices. Right.
3: <laughs> I recall. <laughs> um well, I'm I'm happy you're here and is is New York the first stop on your book? promotion.
2: It is. We launched in L.A. and mm-hmm. it's, na- it's New York and a few other cities to follow, San Francisco, Canada, um, Nashville.
3: Fun, good cities all around. And you're going to be at the 92nd Street Y.
2: I'm going to be at the 92nd Street Y on Friday, the 28th, um, in conversation with Nilou Motamed. I'm very excited about that one.
3: That is going to be a good program. It
2: is. Um, I can't wait to sit down with Nilou.
3: Um, yeah, that's, that's going to be a fantastic conversation. Um, well, let's dive right in. I have your book in front of me. It is so beautiful and your voice is so strong and it's so clear and, um, you know, I, I encounter a lot of cookbooks in my work, but rarely do I just get immediately sucked in and feel like I want to read the whole thing front to back, which is what I did with yours. It's just, it's such a captivating voice and story and your food is so vibrant and it just made me hungry the entire time. Um, but I, let's start at the beginning. Um, the result of the book is, it's kind of like the story of your life, beginning with when your family f- fled Iran in 1980 because of the revolution and the hostage, hostage crisis. Um, what do you remember of living in Iran and what do you remember of leaving Iran?
2: My memories of Iran um, are pre and post-revolution. Mm-hmm. right? And then there was the revolution in the middle. So pre, it was a very typical, normal family life of school, trips to the north, summer vacations um, to my father's side of the family. They're from um, the Caspian region, the Caspian Sea. My mother's family is from um, Azerbaijan Republic, not the Republic, but the Azerbaijan province in Iran. So there was a lot of family gatherings with lots of food and my school and then... There was a revolution and it really does feel like everything changed overnight. And very quickly we had to make this decision to leave. To how go. how
3: like cognizant of that change were you? Because you were you were so young. I mean, how aware were you that things had shifted politically? Aware of everything.
2: Mm. Aware of everything. It's very different when I think of how I'm raising my children now and how aware we are of nurturing their emotional states and talking about things. When you're going through a situation like that, um, there's no time. Right. There's no time to sit down and have a family meeting and to talk about our feelings and how, you know, get in touch with our emotions. Everything is very heightened um, and decisions are being made Within seconds of what to do. So, and when I think of it, my parents at the time were my age now. Mm-hmm. So I can't even quite fathom how they did it, but I'm sure I would do it as well. Um, it, it becomes about getting everyone out safely and um, hopefully with a promising future ahead.
3: Yeah, and kids are so sensitive to energy. I mean, you must have even if it wasn't completely explained to you, or maybe it was, you must have been, you must have really picked up on, you know, the anxiety and the and the fear that was, your parents were probably trying to conceal, I imagine. But.
2: Yes. I mean, looking back now, I, I do think there's probably some type of PTSD there, yeah. you know? Um, but, we did speak of things very openly, politics we spoke of very openly. How could you not? It was happening all sure. around us. Um, so my um, political education and awakening happened at a younger age. I got to know about different countries, um, different you know different methods of running a country, um different governments so it's not all bad. You take yeah. all that, and, it, and it's made me who I am today. So I'm grateful for all of it, actually.
3: Mm-hmm. It's who you are. It's who I am. And it's your book.
2: It is. It and is your my blog. Book. So the, the, it's interesting that the food was the conduit to these stories. It right. sort of, it sparked these stories, these stories that maybe were dormant before. Um, and food was my way back in. Yeah, I mean that's exactly
3: what my next question was. You just kind of answered it cuz I mean know first your family went to Italy and I love reading about that because it's such um it just feels very like joyful. Like that part, I mean it was brief. It was a few years when you were in Italy, but like you had such amazing food memories there and it seemed like such a happy place <clears throat> for your family cuz you had traveled there, you know, many times before, so it was like such a wonderful refuge and mm. you know, and Italian food. Um and then your family ultimately went to Vancouver, and I was going to say like once once you got to Vancouver, it seems like there was a lot of ways in which you know you didn't have to explain who you were like you wouldn't just invite people over to your home and they would eat your food and then that was the story
2: right, exactly. so when we moved to Vancouver, I was ten, and we moved right in the middle of the school year, <laughs> so it was very it wasn't easy to um to make friends and you know coming from Italy and wait but you're from you came from Italy but you're from where it's a lot for a kid from Iran Um, and first there was that having to fix that if it's not Iran it's Iran Um, and then Persia is that the same as Mm, you know so there was a lot I I get it it was a lot for my little friends to wrap their heads around And a lot for
3: you to have to wrap your little head around and then try and explain. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, I used to set up, uh, when we had our after-school play dates, we played, you know, school. And you have a teacher and you have the kids, so I would When it was my turn to be teacher, I would teach the kids the Persian alphabet, my little friends. And then that it would go... We would go into... It was dinner time, and at our home, our home, it's whoever's over stays Mm -hmm. for dinner. And that's when you know the rice dish would come out and the stews and my friends got to know me better through the food
3: i think yeah it makes sense um can you talk a little bit about the food i mean the food that's in your book the food you grew up eating like what are what are some of the the hallmark dishes of persian cuisine or the ones that you know you best remember eating growing up
2: of course rice mm-hmm. mm, we you know it begins with rice <laughs> um rice is is Persians have elevated uh, the method of rice making to an art form, truly. Um, it's very, di- it's different than other types of rice making because in Persian cuisine, the rice is like, they should be like jewels scattered on the platter. So not clumpy. Um, and then they're stained with this gorgeous saffron sunset hue. And then there's the bottom of the pot, the tadig, mm. which means ta means bottom, pot means dig, and that's the crusty rice at the bottom of the pot where sometimes you might think, oh, I burnt the rice. Mm-hmm. It's act, It's the good stuff. Um, you don't want it to burn, but, you know, it's, it's this lovely, crispy, buttery, crispy rice. And then if you have rice, you have all the wonderful, fragrant, um, flavorful stews that you serve with the rice. So it could be an eggplant stew, um, we use an abundant amount of fresh herbs, you know, just bunches upon bunches. And <clears throat> we make this stew called Khoresh which is just parsley and cilantro and fenugreek and Persian dried limes and either lamb or beef um, it's, and beans. And it's very hearty and fragrant. Um, that's another that's another thing about Persian cuisine. So it's not just about what the food tastes like and what it looks like, but what it smells like. Mm -hmm. We always talk about the fragrance of the food.
3: Yeah. It's um, the idea of just having like a gigantic platter of herbs (laughs) on the table is such like a exciting concept to me. But I mean, I wasn't even aware that that was like a dish in, in of itself just a gigantic platter of like every herb you can come across
2: so it doesn't have to be gigantic well it okay can, <laughs> in my
3: head it's gigantic i guess in the book it looks kind of gigantic
2: it can be just it can be a simple platter of you know <laughs> right whatever you have hanging around in your in your um fridge yes we eat fresh herbs with almost every meal um you can think of it as it's the salad equivalent at mm. the Persian table. Um, the fresh herbs aid in digestion, and they help cut through the heartier stews or the soups or rice dishes. Um, it's a fresh and crisp bite. So radishes, parsley, tarragon, cilantro, mint, Persian basil. And once you start eating fresh herbs with your food, you're never going to go back, I promise.
3: Right. yeah. Uh, what about yogurt? You love yogurt. I love yogurt as well. So I was very happy to come across that. Chapter yogurt in your is book. my
2: best friend forever.
3: <laughs> I eat yogurt at most
2: meals. <laughs> Me too. I, I eat yogurt when I'm feeling down. <laughs> I eat yogurt when I'm celebrating, mm-hmm. um, and plain yogurt. Yeah. Um, I don't like the sweet stuff <laughs> that's like cavity inducing, but yogurt is is life. Yeah, um, no,
3: it's the it's the plain, the tangy, the sour. It can be savory, cooling, and yes,
2: it's cooling. So tangy, you you hit on something there. We Persians love tang, mm-hmm. um, and we use a lot of different bright acids to liven up the food. But yogurt is another, you know, it's another side dish. Which if you have your rice and your stew, then you're gonna have either just a tub of yogurt. Or you can grate some cucumber and add some dried mint or fresh mint and some, if you want to get really pretty with it and fancy, some dried rose petals, and that's a side. So for me, if I have my rice and stew, I have to have that yogurt yeah. um, on the side. And it's all, it's all as the perfect bite. Right. Um, So you have a little bit of everything as it's all going into your mouth at the same time. (laughs) I
3: I really want to be an honorary person. person. Um, So you left Vancouver, kind of backtracking to your life, to move to Los Angeles to be an actor.
2: An actor. An actor. (laughs) Um,
3: What made you want to do that? And this is coming from someone who did the same thing.
2: (laughs) It's all I ever knew. Yeah. Um, It felt like it was all I could do, frankly. Um, There wasn't another path. (laughs) Um, I was interested in acting since I was quite young, and then in high school it started taking off, and I had plans to actually move to New York. Um, I studied here for a summer in my teens, but it just so happened that my uncle lived in L.A., and there was a place I could sort of have a launching pad, so I ended up in LA mm-hmm. and now I have never left. <laughs> yeah.
3: But you've kind of, I mean, you started a food blog when you moved to Los Angeles and I'd love to hear about what made you do that. Um, like in a serious way. Mm-hmm. But I also, I went to school to study theater, but then ended up getting into food and mm-hmm. that, you know, became my career path and you've blended that in a really, it seems like a you know a way that's worked out seamlessly for you. But I think a lot of people go from theater to food, and maybe because, not in your case, but in my case and other people I've met, we end up working in restaurants, and that's kind of, like, the gateway there?
2: I actually never had a restaurant job.
3: That's fantastic Um, for you. But
2: I I had other, you know, side jobs, but not a restaurant job. Um, I don't know what it is about going from, you know, the entertainment industry to to food, but for me, starting the food blog was... um, I had my kids, they were babies, and I was getting a little frustrated with, um, you know, not knowing what I was going to do the next day and, and being at the beck and call of, you know, a call to audition or to go to work or not work. So I needed a place to be creative mm-hmm. and to be myself and explore what I wanted to do. And food was just my go-to my go-to thing um, it was something that brought me joy Yeah. so that's why I started the blog um, it was also because the blog really started the same way in, it, uh, in a way how the book started was at our kitchen table with lots of friends enjoying this food and everyone asking me for the recipes and it got to a point where I got tired of like emailing people separately right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need one place to direct everyone so that's everyone. what I thought I thought okay I'm, I'm going to put it here and you can all check in yeah. there and then once I started the blog, um, that's when these stories just very organically started coming out. It was like the recipes informed the stories and the stories informed the recipes. Um, I don't know which really came first. Yeah. Um, and I started enjoying it. I, yeah. I had fun with it.
3: Do you think it unlocked something for you as far as like reconnecting with? Not that you'd ever given up, you know, your heritage and you're obviously still very connected to it through food and your family. But as far as like finding the the stories needing to come out and, you know, connecting with that that part of yourself.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been very proud of my heritage and we, you know, we talk about. When we have friends over and we're digging into the lubia polo, the green beans and chicken rice, um, and and you know people ask, oh, when you know, how did this dish come about? And it's all start well when I was a kid, and you and then the stories come about. But through the blog and the book, um, all those things that we didn't talk about when we went through those moves, it's all starting to come out now, yeah. and it's made me reconnect with my family. I think, on a deeper level, too, and to ask some of those questions that were left unanswered. Right. Um,
3: I want to speak more about that, but we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be back more with
2: Nas.
3: Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in studio with Naz Duravian. She is the author of Bottom of the Pot Cookbook, which is available right now. So go get it as soon as you're done listening to this interview. Um, Naz, we've been having a wonderful conversation about the stories of Um, your life and your journey and how you got to the point where you started your food blog and eventually wrote your cookbook. Um, The intro to your book is so beautiful and like I said at the beginning of the interview it just immediately pulled me in and it's so vivid and gave me such a a strong understanding of who you are as a person. And um, In the intro you talked about how like the bittersweet quality of allowing the taste of Iranian food to unlock those memories of your past. So mm-hmm. we had kind of just started to speak about that. But um, I want to hear more because it sounds like such a visceral experience that you describe, like walking down a hallway in your apartment building, building and smelling rice cooking, and it's just so complicated. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so that the smell of the rice, if you've ever smelled Persian rice in the process of being made, there's nothing like it. It draws you in. And to me, that particular scent is home and family, Mm -hmm. without a doubt. And it's very comforting. It makes me feel, you know, loved and good and all of that. But it is bittersweet as well. So It's all the people that were left behind. It's my my immediate, you know, my family that I don't get to see every day. Um, In that intro, it's about my mother being, visiting, and making that rice, and all the families visiting, but I know that they're going to leave, too. We live in different cities, Um, and it's those... Those years that we lost Mm -hmm. um, when we left Iran, you know, um, who knows what would have, what I would have turned out to do, or it's all those questions that you think, my goodness, what would it have been like? We would still be eating the same food, kind of. Yeah, (laughs) that's the constant. Um, But who would we have been as a family? Where does your mom live now? My mom's in Vancouver. Oh, right. Um, Do you go back to Iran ever? I've never been. You've never been. I've never been back. No.
3: Do you think of going?
2: Eventually one day. One day.
3: It's, I can tell just <laughs> even by your face that you, it's, it is so complicated to think yeah. about.
2: Yeah. Not, not right now, but I hope to one day. I don't know what that would be like. I would be a tourist. Sure. Um, so uh, it, it would be so, I don't, it would be very emotional, I think. Yeah. Um, to go back.
3: What would you, if you were to go back, what do you think you would want to do? Like, what would you seek out first, or what do you f- feel like you have unanswered questions or curiosity about?
2: Honestly, I would want to go back to our apartment,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which I don't think you know. The, I don't know if it's even still there and what it looks like now, but I—that's the first place I would want to go back to. And then I would want to visit, um, like I had mentioned, Gilan Province, where my dad's from and Azerbaijan province where my mom's from and I still have some family there too so Mm -hmm. those are the the two regions I would love to go back to and reconnect
3: yeah I wanted to ask you this earlier but you know you talked about how your parents had to make such a quick decision in fleeing um, and there wasn't really time to even you know sit down and like have a conversation about (laughs) feelings they just had to act and I'm sure you've thought about how you as a parent? What would you do if there was a similar crisis and you knew that you had to make a quick decision? How do you think you would handle it as a parent with your children now?
2: Exactly like they did. Mm-hmm. They put us first, and I think as a parent, that's it's such a it's it's a like you said it's visceral. You don't even have to think twice about it if it involves your children. I think if it was just about yourself, myself, I would take a little more time and, you know, weighs the, weigh the pros and the cons, and, but when it comes down to your children, you do what you have to do.
3: Yeah. Um, I don't know when you started writing this book exactly, but obviously it feels like a very dark and precarious time in the United States right now. Did anything come up for you in thinking about yourself as an Iranian, as an immigrant living in the United States? Um, what sort of feelings came up as you were sort of reconnecting with that part of your life in the midst of what's happened in the United States post the election?
2: I wrote this book. It's taken about two and a half years now. So exactly almost the whole process was during this very odd time that we're living through. Um, It brought up a lot, but I had to be had to be careful and consistent with telling my story without having all this not, I mean, background noise but what was happening, the breaking news stories from hour to hour and day to day I really didn't want that to color this book Mm -hmm. that's not the story I wanted to tell but I couldn't help noticing as I was writing the airport story and what was happening around me with the travel ban yeah um, it was a it was quite surreal actually, mm-hmm. um, and many times I had to turn off the radio, turn off the news and and just stick to my story and and not let that affect what I was going, what I wanted to say originally um. you you know I don't I'm not a believer in oh food will solve all our problems and we can all gather and there will be world peace but I do think it can bring about conversation it can open up dialogue and that's very important once we speak once we stop speaking I think we lose a lot yeah we lose hope um and if we can do it while we're breaking bread I can't think of a better way to do that um Food has this amazing effect of putting people at ease. Um, I've seen it happen at my table, you know, when someone walks in through the door grumpy (laughs) from a long day or L.A. traffic or whatever you have. And and you can sit around and it can just be a very simple meal of warm bread and feta cheese and all those great herbs and some walnuts. And that's all you need. And a hot (laughs) cup of tea. Or a glass of wine, mm-hmm. um, and everyone relaxes. Everyone's shoulders drop. So, if we can do that, if we can, we have to keep conversing and sharing our stories. I think.
3: Yeah, I think that it's the perfect time for your book to come out and encourage more stories like yours and more conversations and highlight much more of our commonalities than our differences.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think when you read the story, I had, I've had an average life in Tehran as a six-year-old. It was probably much closer to yours than, mm-hmm. than we assume that maybe it's not. But I think if you hear these stories, it's like, yeah, we kind of did the same things. Right. You know, we went to the beach for summer vacations, and um, we're not that removed from each other.
3: Yeah, and certainly we've all had the experiences of, you know, coming home to certain smells and having that stir something in us, whether it's nostalgia or, you know, that, that bittersweet feeling, mm-hmm. of that complicated feeling of family and life and, you know, reconnecting with the place where you come from.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, any favorite, I'm sure they're all your favorite, <laughs> but any just a couple quick recipes that you want to highlight and so we can... Go to those first.
2: (laughs) So, Lubia Polo is what I call our mac and cheese. Mm. In our house with my kids and my husband, it's the green beans. It's typically made with red meat. I make it with chicken. Um... And it's so comforting, and I, I can't think of a better way when to spend a Friday night when everyone crashes through those doors and putting on a movie and sitting at the coffee table and digging in with a side of yogurt and some pickles um, and the fresh herbs and the tadig, of course, to munch through. That's our favorite. Um, from the appetizer chapter, the borani um, labu. the yogurt and beet dip. It's just this amazing fuchsia color that brightens up any dinner table or for an appetizer spread. Um, There are so many uh, different oshes. Osh is like a soup, Persian soup, but it's thicker and it's heartier. The um, tomato osh is one of my favorites. Um, The kebabs, we had this kebab party (laughs) for the book shoot. Um, The chicken kebab and the sour, the pomegranate kebab, Um, kebab tosh, they're delicious. The drinks, rose water, charbat, is so fragrant and so, um, again, cooling for the summertime. It's so hot and humid in New York City, like we were talking about. The cantaloupe slushy, palude. That would hit the spot yeah, today, that good. and it, all it really is is just a really fresh, ripe cantaloupe with ice, and I drop a couple of um, drops of rose water in it, and you blitz it. That's it.
3: That sounds and it perfect. hits the spot. <laughs> what about for the colder months, which I'm sure, even though it doesn't feel like it, are soon upon us.
2: Obgushd. Um, Obgushd means. Um, beef broth or, you know, um, beef water <laughs> really that's what it, but it's broth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this lovely, very, um, it, it's, it's quote unquote poor man's food, mm-hmm. but it's very easy to prepare. And it's just, um, it's meat and potatoes and beans and you just let it, and lots of fragrant spices and you let it simmer on your stove for about two to three hours. So you want that meat falling off the bones. It's the shank. And um, and then you can either serve it as is, like a soup, like a thicker soup, or what we do is then we um, we take all the chunkier stuff, so like the meat and the beef and all the beef and the potatoes and, and we mash it. So you serve the soup part and then you serve the mashed up um um, thicker potatoes and meats and it's kind of like refried beans mm. and you smear it on bread and it's so good. Yeah. And it sticks to your bones. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the food in your book is so vivid and you can tell it just smells amazing and looks and the colors are vibrant. Like everything about it just feels like just jumps off the page. So I really... Can't wait to start cooking from it. Thank
2: you. And I have to credit my f- the photographer, Definitely. Eric Wolfinger, um, for that. He just, you know, he got me and he got the food. And that's what I had said. You know, I said, this is vibrant food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need it to, I want it to jump off the page. And, and he got it. Yeah. From the first shot, it was pretty cool.
3: Tell us where we can. Follow you, or you can keep tabs on you know your tour and what you're working on, and your blog, and just tell us how to keep in touch.
2: So you can find me at bottomofthepot.com, and I have all the events listed. Um, I have a dinner coming up in San Francisco on uh, October 7th, which um, I'm co-hosting with Comaj and Chef Hanif Sad of San Francisco. He's a wonderful young Um, Chef. Uh, I can't wait for that. But you can find all the info and tickets on Bottom of the Pot. On Instagram I'm on Bottom of the Pot. (laughs) Twitter it's Bottom of the Pot 1 because someone took Bottom of the Pot. Oh, damn (laughs) you, Bottom of the Pot. (laughs) Facebook, Bottom of the Pot. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Awesome. Well... Thank you so much for coming on and for making time for us while you're in New York. Go check her out at the 92nd Street Y on Friday. And if you're in other cities, find her on tour. And whatever you do, make sure you go out and buy the book and cook everything. And I can't wait to go do that. Thank you again for coming on the show today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Come back next week on Wednesday at 6 p.m. ET on heritageradionetwork.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify.